want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all this. You guys paid for all this. This is Megacorp, an investigative podcast exposing some of the world's most unethical corporations. This series is about Amazon. I'm Jake Hanrahan, journalist and documentary filmmaker. Megacorp is produced by H11 for Cool Zone Media. So, after eight episodes now diving into the many scandals at the heart of Amazon, I thought it was time to talk about the man who built the empire, Jeff Bezos. As we know, Bezos is the richest man on earth. He founded Amazon in 1994, and now it's one of the biggest companies on the planet. It's also, as we've discovered, one of the most controversial. But how did Bezos get to this point? Well, if there's anyone that knows that, it's journalist Robert Evans. He runs the Behind the Bastards podcast, which looks into the lives of some of the worst bastards on earth. So I spoke to Robert Evans about Jeff Bezos. Robert goes into a lot of detail in this, so mostly I'm just going to let the interview run. First, maybe if you can just kind of uh, go into the early life of Jeff Bezos, because he didn't start out as Jeff Bezos. Ah, Yeah, he was born Jeffrey Preston Jorgensen. Um, And one of the things that is, I I think, the first and most amazing thing about the Jeff Bezos story is that his his actual father abandoned the family. And this is not this is not like your normal story of a dude winding up without a dad where like there's there's something like really unsettling or or dark here. Uh, It's that his his actual father his bio dad, um, Theodore Jorgensen, was just like kind of a uh, kind of a shithead Carney, who really, really, really loved unicycling. He was a high-wire unicyclist, um, and having a kid got in the way of his unicycling dreams. Yes, you did hear that right. Jeff Bezos' biological father abandoned him when he was young to fulfill a dream of his as a high-wire unicyclist. Now, it's not funny when somebody abandons their family, but what a strange start that is. Anyway, Robert explains more. He could not get on board with being Jeffrey's father and eventually kind of bounced the fuck out of his life. And in fact, did not know that his son was Jeff Bezos and and who Jeff Bezos was really until a journalist tracked him down like decades later when Amazon was a huge deal and was like, you know, your kid's like super rich and creating what's turning into this monster company. He was very surprised Um, and I think is still kind of a deadbeat unicyclist dude. So Jeff, by the time he was pretty young, um, his mom had met a a new dude um, whose name was uh, Miguel Angel Bezos Perez, uh, who was a, a Cuban who kind of uh, – his version of the story, and I don't know about much about his family back in Cuba or kind of like where they stood and whatnot. But he was apparently as a teenager like painting anti-Castro graffiti, which got him in trouble, and at age 16 he had to flee the country. Um, and so he wound up in the United States. Uh, he did his undergrad work at the University of Albuquerque. So he wound up in, cause Bezos comes from the Southwest, right? That's where his, his family's like a lot in New Mexico. Cause, um, his mom's side of the family were 
really heavily involved in um, the U.S. nuclear programs and like nuclear missiles and, and all that all that good stuff. Um, and Miguel wound up in the same region because the University of Albuquerque was offering free scholarships to Cuban refugees. Uh, and so he met uh, Jeffrey's mom, Jacqueline, um, when he was working as a, a clerk at a bank that she worked at too. And they fell in love and married. And I think before Jeff really, I don't think Jeff really remembers much time before Miguel because Miguel's just kind of always been his dad. And so his mom changed the na- uh, changed his last name to Bezos. And that's how he became Jeffrey Bezos is because this, 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 um, Cuban immigrant dude kind of uh, stepped in to his life and, and took over as his dad. So he he got pretty lucky there. Um, it's a little bit of a winding story. I think it's very funny that his dad abandoned him to be a unicyclist. But also, I, I don't. I, I think it's probably too much to say that had an effect on him because I don't think he really. It doesn't seem like he had any memory of that. You know, so it, it's unlikely that that like that laid some deep-seated wound that is responsible for anything that Amazon's done since. Right, and this this guy, Miguel, kind of took him under his wing, right? Like, he, he seemed to be quite instrumental in, you know, the way Bezos, Jeff Bezos, saw the world growing up. Yeah, and I think that's why Jeffrey kind of grows up as a, a very, very committed capitalist. Um, obviously, his dad is like an anti-Castro activist as a kid, um, and then as an you know as an adult, once he's graduated and out in the world, Miguel works as a petroleum engineer for Exxon. So he is like uh, very much into kind of some of the morally grayer or morally blacker uh, aspects of of of, uh, of capitalism. Um, like he he's very on board with big business, and I think. His attitudes towards kind of capitalism versus socialism certainly have an impact on young Jeffrey as he grows into an adult. When did we see these things kind of manifest? He didn't go straight to Amazon, right? He built this, he kind of built, you know, he built a good life for himself already before that. Yeah, yeah. So he's, you know, he goes to his family has number one. His his maternal family is loaded, right? They've got he he spends his summers as a kid on a twenty five thousand acre ranch in Texas, which is, you know, land is cheaper in Texas, but you're not poor if your family's got twenty five thousand acres. Twenty five thousand acres. There are countries in Europe smaller yeah. than this farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Um, <clears throat> But it also means that Jeff, like, spends his childhood with his grandpa doing a lot of, like, practical engineering, you know, learning how to, like, not just put up fences, but, like, build different feeding things for livestock, doing a lot of handyman work, repairing engines and stuff. So he grows up with this, like, really, um, it, it, like, this really, co- like, uh, a lot of experience making things and and working hard and this kind of, like, he's very molded both by his, his adopted father's um, attitudes towards free enterprise and by this kind of very idyllic rural American chunk of his upbringing where he's, you know, working on a farm and self-reliance and all this stuff. And of course, it's self-reliance within the context of it's his grandpa's hobby farm. You know, his grandpa does not have to make a living with this farm. His grandfather was in the U.S. nuclear program for decades um, and then retired. And this farm is kind of like his hobby as as a retired man. So there's there's you get two sides of it, both like Jeff is kind of convinced I've grown up with this kind of traditional American rural self-supporting, like you t- take care of yourself, the government doesn't attitude, but also the reason why there it's so much more pleasant than a lot of people who grow up in a rural agricultural setting is that they're rich, you know? I grew up in a farming community and it's it's not 
most people do not have access to the resources he had. But I'm not sure he's really aware of that. I think he kind of sees himself as having a salt-of-the-earth upbringing, even though that's really not the case. Um, and he he benefits as well because he, he's in he's he's farming in the summers, and then during the rest of the year he's in Houston. Um, that's where his family kind of winds up, and he goes to this very special. He's in a public school, but his school district has money for something they call it the Vanguard program, and it's like this basically this super special gifted and talented program where they're kind of experimenting with with different ways of uh, of taking care of uh of of or, or of teaching kids and of, of course sort of like molding the curriculum of the program to the gifts of the children and it it seems like a good idea it works really well for Jeff and it's it's you hear about stuff like this too with um with with uh, uh Bill Gates in particular and I, I think Steve Jobs kind of benefited from something similar when he was a kid ditto um Wozniak where these are at the very least upper middle class kids who benefit from a specific kind of educational program that is not available to most kids. So Jeff has very early access to computers. Um, he's able to do what he wants in school rather than kind of like do what the school wants him to learn. The school is kind of go looking at, okay, here's what Jeff's interested in. Here's the stuff that he's he thinks is fascinating. Let's mold his um, – his educational program to it. Um, and he's a very competitive kid. There's a a writer who's sort of evaluating the school program when he's like 12 or so. Um, and, you know, decades later, she still had her notes on him because he really struck her as um, very intelligent, uh, very competitive. Uh, he was working on a science project at the time called an infinity cube, which was this battery powered thing with rotating mirrors that made the optical illusion of an endless tunnel. And it was a thing he'd seen in a store, but was expensive. So he like made a version of it for himself for cheaper. Um, he was entering a bunch of local science competitions and winning them. He's, he's a very, very like bright kid. Everyone kind of pegs this, this kid out as special. And they just, th this whole community, because again, this is a public school program. This whole community in Houston pours resources into Jeff when he's a little kid. Um, and he graduates, uh, he and his, you know, I think he's in Florida by the time he graduates. Um, but he, uh, he he starts this kind of like after school program the summer after he graduates with another kid where they're like teaching younger kids science stuff, doing like stargazing and whatnot with them. Um, he has a really early interest in space travel. Uh, he's his favorite show is Star Trek. As a kid, he's got kind of some of these utopian dreams, and, it, and it's weird because there's this mix of like these sort of utopian and, and Star Trek is coming at utopia from a very left wing sort of perspective. Um, and he, he, he's fascinated by that, but all of his heroes are these businessmen, Walt Disney and Thomas Edison, these guys who are, um, real like capitalist heroes. And he actually, he prefers Disney to Edison um, because he thinks Disney was better at building a team and working together, like making them work together in a concerted direction. And, and it makes sense that Disney is kind of the person he idolizes, right? Because Amazon is definitely has that sort of thing that Disney has where they're pulling everything in the world to them and making this kind of capitalist Katamari that, that just owns everything in a space. Right, yeah, yeah. So he's come from, he comes from a very privileged background. He acts like the way he talks, I agree with you. It's as if, I don't even think he's kind of trying to present a fake narrative. He just thinks because he was on a farm, 
that he's from some like, oh, I'm the salt of the earth. I'm from the dirt. Like, no, you're from the dirt on like a 25,000 acre farm. That's very different. You know, if he didn't want to, if his granddad decided he was sick of that farm, it's not like they would have starved, right? Yeah, they could have they could have stopped all of the farming and kept living comfortably in the ranch house and would have would have been fine. And I, I think it's easy when you're in the kind of position he was as a kid to note that like, well, we worked hard. You know, I was up in, at dawn every day. We didn't stop working until night. We did a bunch of really physically and mentally difficult tasks. So that means like I had kind of this working class experience and upbringing. And the reality is that you're not, you don't really know any of that. You're not really having the authentic experience if there's not the fear of failure. I think it's it's easy because he's working hard as a kid for him to forget that he also has a safety net that about like half a percent of kids in America maybe benefit from, you know? So so he goes on then to, he doesn't exactly end up working in the farming industry or anything like that, right? He kind of follows his dreams of these kind of like capitalist heroes. Yeah, he follows his dreams. He does start like a little kind of educational business that does seem like a decent thing to do. Um, and then he goes off to college. Uh, he goes to Princeton. He's seen most of the people he went to. Journalists have like found other folks who were in his class. He made really no impression on on most people. He's very much like kind of a forgettable dude. And in fact, one of the classmates who like sets him up with a job after college. So you would think this guy knew him well, like when interviewed later after Jeff is rich and famous is like, yeah, I don't remember anything but that he was smart. Like he do he doesn't really um, he doesn't really leave much of an impact. Like bright, but not a dude whose personality like you remember. Um, and there's some weird. He doesn't like music, um, and it, it doesn't appear to be a thing where like some people have like an auditory processing issue, right? Where it's uncomfortable, like for whatever reason, music just like it doesn't feel good in their ears. I don't think it's that because he'll play music for other people and stuff. So with that in mind, let's take a look at a tweet Jeff Bezos put out on February third, twenty twenty. Next to a picture of the singer Lizzo, Bezos wrote, quote, I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% Lizzo's biggest fan, end quote. Now, obviously, that's very cringe to say. But also, this is from a guy that apparently doesn't like music. He's either lying, disingenuous, or he does actually like music. Who knows which one it is? He just doesn't get it, you know? He just doesn't understand why people like music, which is which is interesting. Some folks will claim that this is why Apple beats Amazon to the digital music game, right? And, and then Spotify later. Like, Amazon is, for all the things they're ahead of the curve on, kind of always behind on digital music. Um, which there's a weird, you know, the stuff with Joe Rogan and um, Neil Young and the fight over Spotify. There's kind of a weird parallel there because Neil Young, when he deletes his ca catalog from Spotify, I'm sure he has an issue with Joe Rogan. But a big part of what Young is doing is he's he's got to deal with Amazon music. Right. And so he's plugging Amazon music, too. You know, convenient. Yeah. They're all millionaires. Right. Like <laughs> you shouldn't expect any of them to be your hero. But yeah, so people will say that like that is kind of why Amazon is is consistently behind the curve when it comes to digital music, which is which is noteworthy just because they're you, one thing you have to give Amazon credit on. They're ahead of the curve on most things, you know, um, but Bezos just doesn't get that. And so they're kind of consistently behind. Um, and yeah, he uh, he eventually winds up working in a, a company called Fitel, which is like a, a, a finance, a tech finance company. This is in the mid 80s. I think 84, 85 is when he gets his first big boy job. Um, and so that's this period where 
computers are starting to become standard in investment banks and brokerages, but they're still not the norm, right? They're, they're, that, that process begins the more forward-thinking investment banks and brokerages are putting computers in, right? But a lot of this is still done by analog. You know, today, all trading is kind of done by these machines, and there's some human input, but like a lot of it is these computers kind of gambling with each other. This is the he's he's in on the ground floor of that process, and he is working with a company that basically gets hired by these big banks and brokerages to help them set up these networked computer banks that are initially just kind of augmenting human decision making, but will eventually take it over to a very large extent in finance. You know that's how things work now. And he is, he's, he's, um, I don't think he's necessarily a huge part because he's not a visionary part of this, right? He's working for the visionaries who see where the future is going to be here. But he is also, as a coder, helping to build this. So he's definitely like, it's a good internship for him in terms of he's experiencing work with these people who have seen the future and, and helping to kind of make it with people. And he, he bounces around a few of these early fintech companies, uh, until in 1989, um, he starts having a conversation with a, a colleague about like, hey, you know, we're we're setting up these computer networks um, that are that are connecting like brokerages and allowing them to basically gamble a lot faster. Uh, what if we were to set up like a, a a networked computer intranet thing that anyone could use to like connect to news stories, which will be curated algorithmically based on a person's interest? Um and they almost get investments in the idea. You know, you'll under, this is basically like how Facebook and Twitter work, right? Um, it's a version of that. It doesn't quite happen. But the fact that Bezos is sort of thinking about this in 1989 shows that he does have a really pretty deep understanding of where networked computing is going to go, right? Like he's not just following the trend. He's predicted, oh, this is going to be a big deal. Um, and he's very much ahead of the eight ball on that. Um, I think in the late eight, uh, like early nineties, he gets a job with an investment, uh, with a, uh, an investment firm that manages a hedge fund called D.E. Shaw, um, which is this, as firms go, it's one of these ones that's really ahead of the curve. They're doing a lot of computer stuff. The guy who runs it is hiring a lot of programmers and Bezos is a fucking superstar there, you know, um, his colleagues and it, he's both a superstar, but he also, He's clearly already thinking about his legend, right? People who work with him will note that he would like keep a sleeping bag in his office so that he could work overnight if he needed to. But the main purpose of the sleeping bag was not for him to actually sleep at work because he didn't do that often. He just kept it in view so his employees would see it and like would think, oh, Jeff, you know, we need, I need to work like that because Jeff is like crashing at work sometimes. He's using it as a prop, right? Just to interrupt for a second, I think this point that Robert is explaining is very interesting if you look at how Amazon went on after Bezos started it. He's always saying how people need to just work harder. But as we see here, he allegedly used props to give the impression that he was the hardest worker back in the day. Now the hardest workers are on the warehouse floor and he's telling them they need to work as hard as him. Perhaps he's still using props now. He's very much bought into the um, the kind of myths we say about like how you ought to work and kind of, you know, this is how you get ahead is by being... Uh, you know, the, the, the busiest and by, you know, sleeping at your desk and, and, and basically living at the office, this kind of stuff that, that is huge in the tech industry, right? This is why Google has sleeping rooms and massages on site. And like, they try to keep people at the office as often as possible. Um, you know, this is, this is just kind of, uh, he, he's, he wants to, I, I think he, 
he understands that mythologizing is an important part of being a founder. And I think even though he's not a founder at this point, he wants to found a a big tech company, you know, that that is beginning to be his ambition. Um, but he's working at D.E. Shaw. He's doing great. He meets uh, a woman named Mackenzie Tuttle uh, while working at the hedge fund. She'd graduated from Princeton, too. She actually studied with Toni Morrison uh, when she got an English degree, which is a is weird that there's a connection between Toni Morrison and Jeff Bezos that close. But there you go. Um, she's a novelist and she's kind of working as a secretary in this tech company and she winds up with a big crush on Jeff. And it is one of those things, like we talked about Bill Gates, Bill Gates has gotten in some trouble recently because he had a history of creepily hitting on women who were his employees at Microsoft. Yeah. And some Um, connections to Epstein. (laughs) Yeah. And some kind of connections to Epstein. We could go on for a while about, about that. Um, it does not appear to be that kind of case with Bezos. McKinsey, even though she's divorced him now, is adamant that like she was the one who started hitting on him. Um, she was the one who kind of pushed him to go out with her and, and fell in love with him. And it, it does seem they stayed together a long time, you know, um, you know, they've split up now, but they were together like 20 years or so. Um, and she was a big part of the creation of Amazon. So whatever else, it, it does seem like uh, he is a human being who is capable of connecting with another person, which I guess uh, there you go. Um yeah, so they uh, she gets together with um, McKinsey while he's working at D.E. Shaw, and he starts to – this is the – you know, he's making really good money at this. He's not like a millionaire, but he's extremely comfortable, but he starts to kind of chafe, uh, not because he, he likes his boss, he likes what they're doing, but it's not his business, and he's already had this idea that he really wants to to, to create, one that he's, he's kind of started forming while talking with his boss at D.E. Shaw. He wanted to build something he called the Everything Store. Um, so this is the early 90s. You know, this is kind of right around the period, a little before the period that we hit eternal September, you know, where everybody is online. This is like immediately before that happens. But Jeff sees the potential of the internet and recognizes that a huge amount of commerce is going to take part in it. And that if you, because of what the internet is, if you could build a store with the kind of distribution center necessary, you could sell everything to anyone, you know, as opposed to having to kind of uh, locally curate your your inventory and deal with all of that. Like you could have a store that could sell everything cheaper than basically anyone else um, and undercut all these retail change, chains. Um, and he has one the, – the idea he has about this that's particularly innovative, that's, that's new at this point. You have to think, you know, we're talking 92, 93, 94 – he wants to he wants the sales on the store to be heavily driven by consumer reviews you know and you can see this as kind of him branching off from this idea he has for an algorithmically curated news service he wants people reviewing products to have an influence on how often those products show up when other people go to the site and he wants that to drive people to buy things like the reviews of customers you know and that is again really new at this point because the internet does like you you have to think if you're if you're shop if all of your shopping is like going to a mall or a store you're not buying things generally because like of a review you know if you get a review it's like someone whose job who works at wired or whatever whose job is to review products as opposed to Anyone who buys a product being able to leave a review online and you can see, oh, 800 people gave this a five-star rating and, you know, that means it's probably good. Um, That's the big idea that Jeff has. Uh, And he grows obsessed with this idea of the everything store. Um, 
he starts to feel like in the mid-90s, it's probably time to do this. So he quits his high-paying job, uh, so does McKinsey, and he and his wife drive to California because um, they initially, right, you know, that's where most people would, would start a tech business in both this period and now. But he decides taxes are too high because um, the thing about e-commerce, right, and this is the way it it, it's, it works, or at least it worked for a while. I think there's been some changes, but um, consumers at the time were you would only have to pay taxes on whatever the uh, it, like the business would only have to pay taxes based on like the state that it resided in, you know. Um, and so he winds up taxes in California are too high; it doesn't make sense. He goes to Washington State because um, it has good infrastructure. Um, but it has a tiny population. So Washington does have sales tax, but um, because it's not a populous state, it means every state other than Washington that people buy from in the store he's going to be creating don't have to pay sales tax. So this is kind of his way of minimizing the number of customers who might have to pay sales tax on products for what's going to become Amazon. Um, and he starts with the plan to sell books, um, mainly because all books – uh, come from one or two, there's one or two companies in the United States uh, that distribute all of the books everywhere. You know, they sell the books to the stores. They're the ones who actually, they're not producing the books, but they're the ones who are like gathering them and and putting them in warehouses and shipping them out to where they need to go. So he sees like the the book industry already has pretty good infrastructure. It would make it easy for me to order books anywhere in the country and get them shipped to anywhere in the country. Um, so he starts, he decides that I'm going to start by selling books online, all books. So it's like a bookstore. And again, this is a really new idea at the time. You don't have to like go to the bookstore and see if you can find something or like have them special order something. Everything is just available all the time. Um, they wanted to call it Kadabra at first, uh, and then make it so.com because again, he's a big Star Trek nerd. Um, but their friends thankfully talk them out of most of these things. They go through a bunch of different names. Um, and relentless.com I think is Jeff's favorite. Uh, you can actually still go to relentless.com today. If you type it in, it'll take you to Amazon. Um, but yeah, so they, 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 they start this business. They eventually land upon Amazon as a name. And it's worth noting that like when this business, uh, when he starts this company, he puts 10 grand of his own money in it, which is a significant amount of money in like 1995. Uh, but it's also primarily funded by $84,000 in interest-free loans. Um, some of them from his first employees who are people he met in the financial tech industry uh, and pour money into it. Um, and a lot of it comes from his parents. Uh, and in fact, they eventually invest $100,000 of it in 1995 um, of their own money. So it, it is this thing. It's the same deal with Elon Musk, really, um, where he gets his business first business gets started because of money that his dad um, and his mom and dad pump into the business. So remember, kids, the moral of the story here is if you want to make it big in business, all you have to do is have rich parents. That's it. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. 
Jeff tells them there's a 70% chance they're going to lose it all. Uh, The fact that they're willing to invest that in him says a lot, both about their level of financial um, privilege and about, you know, just they believe in their son. So it's this mix of like, well, that's very sweet, but it's also this continuing story where it's like, yeah, part of why Jeff Bezos is so successful is he got every lucky break a motherfucker can get, you know? (laughs) It's this this consistent story with these, these big tech founders where they all have part they, they they all have the best fucking luck they could possibly have had you know uh jobs gates uh musk uh it, it, it's it's a very consistent story where it's like yeah you were rich you had all of the educational resources you had all of the the backing of your family you had um, you know, everything about your life up to this point was geared at clearing a path to you and making it easy. And again, I think it's easy for them to miss that. I think it's easy for a guy like Bezos to miss that because you're still working hard, you know? Um, you're still putting in a lot of hours. But motherfucker, there's a lot of people who work just as hard and don't have parents who can throw $100,000 at their business idea, you know? <laughs> So Amazon, there's a couple of sneaky things that they start to do early on. One of them is that this, 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 these book distributors have a rule where you have to order 10 copies of a book at a time for them to ship it to you, you know, because they're selling to bookstores. They're not selling to individuals. Amazon is not that big at this point. So it's, it would be a huge waste of money for them to order 10 copies of, of a single book. Um, or 10 copies of books. You have to order 10 books at a time, basically. And they, they they don't have enough volume initially. So what they do is they'll order like the books that they have orders for from their customers. And then they'll fill out the rest of the 10 with copies of books they know are out of print. And those out of stock orders get auto canceled, but the company will ship the two or three orders that aren't out of stock uh, to Amazon anyway. Uh, and that saves Amazon a lot of money kind of at the expense of these distributors that they're working with. Um they get another $145,000 from his parents a year or so later because, you know, it's an early company. It's it's uh, burning money very quickly. It loses $300,000 in 95. Um, but, you know, he, Jeff does kind of say, hey, this there's a good chance this will fail, mom and dad. Now you've put a quarter of a million bucks in. But he also starts to investors projecting net sales of $74 million by the year 2000. Um, and he is way off because his actual net sales by 2000 are 1.64 billion. Um, yeah, uh, Amazon grows really fucking quickly. Uh, there's all these sort of attitudes from the early days. You know, every big tech company kind of mythologizes its early days. Um, Amazon's first company motto is get big fast. Um, they have an IPO in 1997. They have this legal fight with, um, um, with Barnes and Noble. And while they're kind of doing this in these, in these early days, Jeff's writing his first letter to shareholders, you know, because they have their IPO in 97. And one of the things he writes in this letter is this is day one for the internet. And if we execute it well for amazon.com and day one is like a religious thing in Amazon. Um, Day one thinking is, is they, is the way they kind of talk about it. Like you need to be thinking like it is day one, you know, for the for the future, for the internet, for whatever it is you're working on, you have to have this uh, this um, acceptance of kind of infinite possibility. That's the attitude that he tries to inculcate within his employees. 
Um, people work very, very hard uh, at Amazon. They do not have initially like they have just a couple of warehouses at first for like the first big Christmas rushes they have. Um, and he forces his employees during one of these Christmases to leave their homes and families for two weeks and spend time either working customer service lines or working in warehouses to distribute books. Um, he keeps his workers two to a hotel room. Um, and it's this, you know, it's an early version of what will happen later where, uh, yeah, he's, he, he, he doesn't, you know, it, whatever has to happen to keep the, the warehouses most efficient is what's going to happen. And he, he's kind of, you see from the beginning, there's not a whole lot of, of belief that Bezos has that you ought to, that your family life is more important than Amazon shipping out products, right? It's certainly not to him and he doesn't feel like it should be for anyone else. And that's okay when you've got this tiny startup company and everybody involved has some equity and everybody involved is the same kind of crazy. But as it gets bigger and bigger, these warehouses get bigger and bigger. And these people aren't cut into the profits. These people don't have any kind of um, buy-in to the organization. But he still has the same attitude that like, well, you shouldn't have a life outside of this if if that's going to at all reduce the efficiency of the warehouse. It's, it's interesting because from the very early on, you saw what was just basically now the reason there is so much bad press on Amazon, the reason um, that Megacorp, this podcast even exists. It started very early on. You know what I mean? The attitude. It, it starts at the very beginning. There's stories that are told almost as like pride of like employees weeping at their desks uh, because they're so overworked. Um, and that that's in line with like his the, the motto that he wants his employees to have is I'm peculiar, which basically means like I'm willing to work like a crazy person and and cut years off of my life in order to make this company a, a success. Um, he, he comes up with this list of 14 rules. Um, that are, you know, his attitudes on on business and whatnot. They're kind of like the religious founding of Amazon corporate culture. Um, a lot of it's just kind of stuff like hire and develop the best, which I think every company uh, agrees is important. But he also wants employees to d- exhibit ownership uh, of, of the chunk of the business they're working on um, and do deep dives to like find things that are problems and fix them. And that is that is that attitude of ownership, I think, goes both ways. He wants employees to act as if they own the part of Amazon that they're working on. So it's very personal to them. Um, but he also is going to act as if he owns you, you know, like that's that's his attitude. And yeah, you're a this, product. Yeah, you're a product. And there's this very – they developed this very mechanical method of analyzing employee um, – success or failure. They have these like 50, 60 page long employee evaluations that have these that are filled with numbers that are kind of like statistical uh, derivations of like how that employee is doing or this employee is doing. Um, And employees are expected to like memorize these different numbers uh, that are put together by the company to explain their success or failure and be willing to like be able to recite them when like their manager calls them and asks about a number. You have to be able to have an answer to that kind of stuff. Fucking um, psycho. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And, and and Bezos become like is kind of famous for his temper. Um he's he's very commonly screams at people in meetings. He likes to mock and deride employees when they when they fail or when they say something that he doesn't think is like a good enough answer. Um he he's very kind of in like infamous for breaking people down during meetings uh and attacking them. Um he, there's also this kind of early on attitude Amazon has that like 
if you're a woman, um, you having a kid or anything is not like an excuse for uh, – uh, and it's not even that. It's that. There's this story of this woman, Elizabeth Willett, who's like a former army captain who gets a child. And because she has a kid now, she wants to leave, come to work earlier and leave earlier so she can pick her baby up and then go work at home. Like she's working the same hours as everyone else. She just alters her schedule. But she gets in trouble because it looks like she's leaving earlier to her employees who are coming in later. Um, and her boss is like, I'm not going to defend you because it doesn't look good to your peers. And this is this is you hear a lot of stories like this at Amazon where um, because so much of the employee evaluations are your coworkers, you're, you're supposed to kind of attack and poke holes in the performance of your coworkers. It's very competitive. Um, there's this really abusive attitude towards people who, you know, anything goes wrong in their lives. If you get sick, you know, if you have a death in the family, um, even if that doesn't actually uh, uh, impact your um, your actual work performance, if you like miss a day, everyone who works with you is going to attack you for it. And that's going to be in your performance review. And so it leads to people like breaking down. Again, this the people weeping at their desks is incredibly common. People just having these like emotional collapses. Um, and a lot of it's driven by, you know, because Jeff is the kind of guy who two employees faces will insult them and attack them and, and give these very detailed breakdowns of like why they've failed him. And he builds a system within Amazon that is supposed to spread that attitude out to everyone else. Like, again, Amazon is, this is kind of, the, I, I guess the most important point and maybe even like the, the penultimate point I want to make here, Amazon is the way that it works, the way that it treats people is an extension of how Jeff Bezos treats people. Like he built it to work that way. It, it, it is everything that is kind of abusive and anti-human about the company's labor practices is that way because it's how Jeff thinks people should be treated. Um, and it's how he treats people in person. You know, these big impersonal robotic systems are a reflection of how he treats individuals who work for him, including people who have, he's known for years. He's very famous for like somebody will like spend years and years working 80 hour weeks and be integral to the company's success. And then the instant they stumble, he fires them and replaces them with someone else. There's no understanding of like, and, and, you know, there's plenty of failures that Bezos makes. He never has to pay for them, right? Like his, him missing out on Apple Music and, you know, failing to understand that that's an area for Amazon. He doesn't get fired for that, but he lets people go or edges them out and replaces them with someone younger for much smaller uh, snafus. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's, I think that's kind of the best point to end on is that when you think about the things that are anti-human that are really fucked up about how Amazon functions, those things are fundamentally reflections of how Bezos treats the people in his own life. This company is a direct reflection of his personal morality. That was Robert Evans going into the details of Jeff Bezos and how he formed Amazon in his own image. In the next episode of Megacorp, we'll be looking into how Amazon screwed over its flex drivers. Megacorp is made by my production company, H11, for Coolzone Media. It's written, researched, and produced by myself, Jake Hanrahan. It was also produced by Sophie Lichterman. Music is by Sam Black. Graphics by Adam Doyle. And sound engineering by Splicing Block. If you want to get in touch, follow me on social media at Jake underscore Hanrahan. That's H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. 
Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.